another American Bankruptcy Institute podcast. I'm Kara Bruce, the ABI's resident scholar for the fall of 2013 and an associate professor at the University of Toledo College of Law. Local governments are confronting the greatest fiscal challenges in at least a century as they strain to balance their budgets in the wake of the Great Recession. A slow economic recovery, reductions in state aid, and shrinking tax bases, among many other factors, have reduced many municipalities' ability to provide day-to-day services for their residents, while simultaneously meeting pension and health care obligations or investing in municipal infrastructure. In some cases, these financial strains have reached crisis level. Both the structure of local governments and the response to this crisis vary dramatically from locality to locality. So what works? What doesn't? What lessons can we learn from today's struggling cities that might help to prevent or remediate future municipal crises? These issues are the focus of the George Mason University's Municipal Sustainability Project. In late September of this year, the George Mason University State and Local Government Leadership Center, with support from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, released an extensive data study of the fiscal health of six American cities, Detroit, Michigan, Chicago, Illinois, Baltimore, Maryland, San Bernardino, California, Providence, Rhode Island, and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. With me to discuss this study is the principal investigator, Frank Shafroth. Mr. Shafroth is an assistant professor and director of the Center for State and Local Leadership at George Mason University. He's also an adjunct professor in the Graduate School of Public Policy at George Washington University. He has served as the director of federal policy and intergovernmental relations at the Municipal Securities Rulemaking Board, was chief of staff for the U.S. Representative James Moran, director of policy and federal relations for both the National Governors Association and the National League of Cities, and was assistant counsel for the U.S. Banking Committee. All told, he has over 30 years of experience in municipal governance issues. So welcome, Frank. Thanks for being with me. Thank you. Well, I'd like to start by getting an overview of your research project. How did you come to choose these six cities to study? Obviously, we knew that uh, a couple of these cities, particularly San Bernardino and Detroit, were in serious trouble. and because I had actually taken a class up to Central Falls while it was in bankruptcy and met key people in the governor's office and met with the mayor of Providence, what we looked at is we tried to pick, uh, except for San Bernardino, five cities that were, for the most part, old industrial cities that were all in relatively strong physical condition 30 to 40 years ago. That is, they were central industrial cities. You had the Motor City, Baltimore, this big port city, Chicago, the steel city, Pittsburgh, the steel city, uh, and how significantly their physical futures changed over that intervening period to try and gauge what was going on, why were there different outcomes, what appeared to me the biggest factors that affected either their current uh, status as in bankruptcy or close to it, or in the case of, say, Baltimore Providence, significant improvements in the last, say, eight or ten years. So can you tell us a little bit about your methodology? How did you gather your data? How far back did you look? Uh, For the most part, 
you know, in a general sense, we look back 30 years. But obviously, we tended to look back over the last decade or a little bit more. Uh, we did a fair amount of data collection looking at race, poverty, crime, significant factor that I think a lot of people don't always think about, demography. So, for instance, obviously a key factor we determined was what's happening to that key demographic age group of 19 to 30. Are they moving into that city or are they moving out of the city? Because it's such an important predictor of the economic health and the perceptions of the future for that municipality. So those were the key data things we tried to look at. And so you've produced a, a comprehensive report so far. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your your findings, if, if you can do so in, in general terms, and, and maybe what's to come in the future with this study? Uh, let me start with sort of general findings. Um, we found, um, I'm going to give you that answer in two distinct ways. One is we found that leadership is very, very important. Vision is important. By vision, I'm talking long-term. What does the leadership of that city envision itself being a decade from now? So it's not, what are we doing the day after the mayor is elected, but what does that mayor and council see as what that city might be a decade from today? Uh, We looked at uh, is there a constructive state role? And obviously the obverse, is there a destructive or sort of irrelevant state role? We looked at long-term and short-term hard choices. Are they being made or are they being avoided? We looked at transparency. Is it easy to get access to numbers to get a sense of what the physical health of that municipality is? To a lesser extent, we looked at the role of Wall Street. Part of that comes from having spent a lot of time looking at what happened in Jefferson County, which, as you know, is maybe going to emerge from municipal bankruptcy in December. Mm-hmm. We looked at the reliance on one-time revenues as opposed to a more uh, permanent source of revenues. We looked at disparities we, uh, I have one sort of funny category, I call it canary in the coal mine. Is there someone that's able to warn everybody well in advance? Is there someone in an institutional role? Is there someone that played that role? And then we looked uh, a lot at the state role, as you talked about. So it's interesting You know, when I was in Detroit speaking to the elected officials of cities across the state, I said, if I look and I add in Alabama, Alabama is is defined by Judge Bennett in its bankruptcy decision for uh, Jefferson County as a precipitator of the municipality's bankruptcy. In Michigan, I described the state role as a post crisis intervener. That is, when it's really too late to save the day, the state intervenes. I look at California that I would categorize in the contributory category. It contributes to physical distress and municipal bankruptcy. Uh, Rhode Island, 
really a almost a 180-degree turn after Central Falls so that it now plays a constructive role, which we've most recently seen in the turnaround for East Providence. Maryland has for some time played a constructive role, one of the more constructive roles of any state in the country. Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania, which has Act 47, uh, I put in the category of a dependency role. Virtually no city that's ever gone under Act 47 in Pennsylvania has emerged. And Illinois is... uh, I haven't come up with a good term, but it's almost an ignorancy role. That is, (laughs) (laughs) with clear evidence that the state needs to do something in order for Chicago or other municipalities in the state to have a good chance for a good physical future, they have to do something, and they simply have not done it. So, you know, that last part, we really... We looked at, and it sort of leads into your question, what do we see as next steps? You know, obviously we're looking for someone to support our research, but a critical part is looking why this great uh, difference, these great distinctions between the different state roles and what's important information for states so that, you know, Pennsylvania can change from a Um, dependency role in the way it deals with cities in physical distress to a more constructive role. What can we learn from Maryland and Rhode Island that would be important for California and Alabama? That that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, and that that begs the question, uh, do do the lessons of Maryland and Rhode Island and maybe some other uh, more functional states, are those generalizable or are are they largely a product of 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 a unique culture that that may not work in other localities. Well, actually, I think to some extent in those two states, what, what's unique is their geogra- their geography. Mm. They're both small states. Uh, both cities are port cities, so there is a clear recognition that Providence and Baltimore are critical to the economies of the state. Uh, there are differences, obviously, in um, in Rhode Island. After seeing what happened in Central Falls, two things happened. Number one, uh, Rhode Island, like a number of states, does not have any constitutional protection for pensions. So when there was a unilateral decision made by Judge Flanders, the receiver for Central Falls, to cut pensions for retirees, it sent a pretty strong message to the unions in Providence that they had a place at the table with the mayor and council as long as the mayor didn't file for bankruptcy. So they had an enormous vested interest in working with the city to prevent bankruptcy instead of losing their place at the table with bankruptcy. So. You know, both a recognition by the governor that Providence, the future of Rhode Island's economy is dependent upon a healthy Providence. So that was one factor. But the other factor was uh, almost an utter reversal for the unions to want to work constructively with the city to avoid bankruptcy rather than be a party to bankruptcy. So that made that unique. In Maryland... 
someone will probably crucify me for saying this, but I think it was it was an enlightened attitude, somewhat contributed by Maryland has probably more than any other state in the country more mayors of Baltimore that have been elected governor, <laughs> which probably means the governor has a better perception and feeling about Baltimore than than you see in a lot of other states, right? Where where if you're a lot of mayors of big cities can never get elected governor because they're so distrusted. So you have non-big city governors in most states. But the thing that I think jumped out at me more than any other part from Baltimore was the state treasurer saying to me, she said, Frank, you know, there's a recognition that there's a much higher level of poverty in Baltimore. That means there are significantly reduced revenues coming into the city, but significantly greater services that the city has to provide than any other municipality in the state of Maryland. So the state has said that doesn't seem fair. So the state now provides those services. So, you know, they, in effect, they have recognized great, greater disparities in Baltimore than really any other municipality in Maryland. But instead of somehow condemning the city or ignoring it, they've come in with a very different sort of perspective, saying, therefore, recognizing they have they have a lesser physical capacity per capita, we are going to take the most expensive part of their municipal government, and we will provide and finance the services to those in greatest need. So... That is very, that's quite unique anywhere and, and very different, obviously, than the other states we looked at. Um, the other factor in Rhode Island was a recognition if you wait until too late and a city files for bankruptcy, there are enormous costs after they've fallen off the edge. Far better, far less expensive to state taxpayers to find a way to intervene not in a mandatory way, but in a volunteer way to offer constructive help before it ever gets there. And that's, at least so far, has proven to be exceptionally successful. So I think it saved the state taxpayers quite a bit. I think it saved the state's credit rating from dropping. Um, so those are they're two quite different but successful models that might be models to other states where there are local governments in distress. Well, and that's a nice segue uh, in, into more of a focus on Detroit, uh, where y- your report reflects that neither of those models were were very much in effect. Uh, so, Frank, you've looked at, at Detroit uh, in this retrospective for, and forward-looking study, um, and I don't want to beat a dead horse here. I know that there are plenty of diagnoses out there about how Detroit got into this position, but... But I do want to give you an opportunity, based on your study, to to give us a sense of of where you think the breakdown uh, with Detroit occurred. You know, in some sense, I could say all of the above. Uh, It um, lacked good internal leadership. I mean, it's just a couple of weeks ago we saw the former mayor uh, given a sentence of 28 years in a federal penitentiary. Um, So, you know, those key criteria we opened this discussion with of leadership, mm-hmm. vision from within the municipality did not exist. 
the constructive state role was not there. The city never made any long-term or short-term hard choices. If, if you look at the pension situation, you can see that overwhelmingly. And it lacks transparency. So the top five criteria we looked at, the city is shortchanged on each and every one of those. Now, it's had, you could say, history, too. It's um, Once you start down that road, uh, you've seen a city now that is one-third of the size it was, but it still has the original physical boundaries. I'm, I'm not sure any city that it had a population decline of two-thirds but retained and Detroit, you know, in terms of physical area, is still one of the largest cities in the United States. So if you just think about the challenge of providing water, sewer, lighting, uh, police and fire, you know, all the things, mm -hmm. all the services that a municipality has to provide, you know, my conclusion is I don't believe that could be done. Even if the city were were far better run, um, even if the state played a far more constructive role, those boundaries are too large. You know, with a a corporation, a business corporation, <laughs> if it has three buildings but it has defined itself down so it only has employees that need one building, they sell the other two buildings. Mm -hmm. So... It's a fairly, not fairly, it is an enormous difference between a municipality, you know, a Chapter 9 corporation, let's call it, versus a Chapter 11 corporation, which can adjust its physical infrastructure to deal with its reality. So that's, <coughs> that's an important part of the Detroit story. It makes it really unique amongst all the cities we looked at. And, you know, because of what it is, it's not really a part of the, you know, as we're entering day seven of the bankruptcy trial this morning in Detroit, it's not a part of that discussion. And neither the state nor anyone in the city has raised it to say, to get out of bankruptcy, we need a different city in terms of physical boundaries. Now, Frank, I was interested at uh, the section in, in your report called Who's, Who is in Charge, uh, which, yep. which has to do with some of this. Not only is Detroit's footprint uh, much bigger than it needs to be, but also uh, you, you reference how uh, Detroit handle has responsibility for some municipal services that, that other states handle on a much more, uh, at higher levels of government. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about that? And do you see anything changing in that respect um, in terms of sharing services, blending services, or, or reapportioning the financial obligations for, for keeping, say, the trains running and the lights, lights on? Well, the interesting thing is, um, you know, there is <clears throat> Detroit owns the water and wastewater services for the metropolitan region. Uh, indeed, the um, emergency manager has proposed selling that. So there have been lots of discussions about making that a regional facility to serve the entire region. Um, <clears throat> very political, but part of that recognition that uh, 
um, here's something everybody has to have and raising the question of shouldn't this be a shared service? It's nonsensical for each each uh, municipality in the region <clears throat> to have to pay it or have to be paying someone else. Mm-hmm. That, it, that it can be better run. Uh, you know, there are oh, well over 100 municipalities in the <coughs> excuse me in the Detroit metropolitan area. So <clears throat> that's already in effect part of the discussion. Now, I haven't seen either candidate up for election today to be the new mayor of Detroit really discuss that. The state hasn't really discussed it, or, or and the the emergency manager has has put it on the table. He's obviously, as you know, put on the table should the Detroit Institute of Art, which is really a regional gem, be sold. Mm-hmm. So obliquely, not directly, I think there has been some discussion of boundaries and shared services. But no one has dealt with it directly, in part because Detroit can't deal with it directly. You know, Detroit's interesting. It nearly encompasses two other municipalities within Detroit's boundaries that, that are both in serious trouble. So an important part of the discussion in Michigan and involving Michigan and Detroit is you can't really isolate Detroit from its surrounding metropolitan area. But so far, it has. And the Chapter 9 trial going on under Judge Rhodes can only really deal with Detroit. So Judge Rhodes has no way to say, well, we need Wayne County here to talk about, you know, Wayne County's um, role jointly. Um, and, and the governor has not really made much in the way of proposals to deal with things like joint services. So I think it's at the heart of any long-term future of that region, but I don't see anyone putting it forward as a creative proposal that would potentially lead to something. I'm I'm going to switch gears for for just a second here and yep. and then I want to get back to those long-term ideas and and vision as you mentioned before but you know pension obligations are certainly the uh, 800 pound gorilla in any discussion of the Detroit bankruptcy restructuring efforts. Uh, In your report, you write that on a per-household basis, the city owes more for retiree health care than any of the cities at the center of the 30th largest metropolitan areas except for Boston and New York. So pension health care obligations, a major uh, financial burden here. And and I know that you're following the Detroit case very closely uh, and, and picking up hints from Mr. Orr's restructuring efforts that have come before. So do you have a sense of what's going to happen in, in this respect, what we can see coming down the pike? Well, I'm going to give you sort of a bifurcated answer. Um, I think that I think that the um, first round of the bankruptcy trials under Judge Rhodes will finish. Well, I'm crossing my fingers as early as Friday night while I'm in Detroit. And I think, I mean, if I had a crystal ball, uh, I think Judge Rhodes is going to say, 
I've concluded that the city is eligible for Chapter 9 protection. And I believe it's the judge's view, although he clearly did not want to discuss it yesterday, that a federal law will trump the protections for pensions uh, under Michigan's Constitution. And so once he does that, it means there are going to be changes, and the changes will probably be retroactive. And that will lead to a restructuring. Because at the moment, as long as the recipients and the advocates on behalf of the recipients believe they are constitutionally protected, there is there's no reason for them to feel compelled to negotiate to modify mm-hmm. the system. Moreover, as both Judge Rhodes and as the emergency manager have said, no one really wants to cut them very much because on an average of $19,000 a year for a retirement pension in Detroit, you can't cut it very much or you've taken someone from being from contributing to Detroit's economy to becoming a, um, a supplicant who mm-hmm. will use the economy. So, you know, despite all the fireworks yesterday in Judge Rhodes' courtroom, I think there's a feeling by Judge Rhodes, by Kevin Orr, that you can't disproportionately cut those because they're not very high to begin with. And you can't have a new Detroit and a new economy if you take a huge chunk of its retirees and you make it unaffordable for them to even live. So I I think we will see something there. And it's interesting, some of the parties in Detroit are already beginning to have some quiet discussions on the presumption that Judge Rhodes is going to determine the city is eligible for bankruptcy, and they need to move on to putting together a recovery plan. That's a good sign. I don't know whether that's really answered your question, but well, to the to the extent that you can forecast the future, I think I think you did a pretty good job there. <laughs> Um, so I do want to turn back to this idea of vision and something that, that I really liked after reading it in your, your report. Uh, you wrote that uh, Mr. Orr hopes to use the bankruptcy process not just to restructure debt, but to alter the dysfunctional political culture um, facing Detroit. So are you optimistic seeing this bankruptcy process, having seen what, what has come before, and having some sense of, of what's going on in the gra- on the ground, uh, that Detroit can come out of this uh, with the, the long-term vision and maybe some of the other positive attributes you mentioned at the start of this talk? Let's say 70%, okay? Uh, Long-term, when you go to the Windy City and you listen to the mayor, he talks about what he wants Chicago to be 10 years from now. Mm -hmm. So I think every week he says, how am I doing getting to where Chicago needs to be 10 years from now? So when I define vision, it's, how you want your city to be unique amongst all the cities in the world. What will distinguish your city? And if that's what it is, what do you need to be doing today to make it that 10 years from now? 
So I'm a little bit um, disappointed that in the campaign that will end when the polls close in Detroit tonight, neither of the two candidates has really said, if you elect me, this is my vision for what Detroit will be 10 years after it emerges from bankruptcy. Because I think you want voters, unlike, say, the voters voting in Virginia today, to be going to the polls saying, I want to support this person because she or he has a vision of the place where I live and what it can be and what it's going to take to get there. So the disappointing part is that has not happened in this campaign. And I grant you're running for office to be mayor where you're you're not really going to be the mayor as long as Kevin Orr is managing the bankruptcy recovery. But still, you ought to be able to enunciate what you think it could be. So that's the negative side. The positive side is if you look at the area around Wayne State, it, it is vibrant. If you look at some parts of downtown, it's vibrant. There are young people coming in. The real estate prices to purchase prime real estate in downtown Detroit are terrific. So I think there are some people on the private side, not the public side, coming in realizing there is a great opportunity. I was excited the last time I went to Detroit, a couple of weeks ago, uh, when the guy who drove me into the conference, I said, so where are you from? He said, Southern California. I said, excuse me? He said, Southern California. I said, you are from Southern California and you're in Detroit. Are, are you ill? He <laughs> said, no, this is much better. There are better job opportunities in Detroit than Southern California. I said, yeah, but there's no beach here. He said, there are better job opportunities. I have lots of friends here. I said, well, where do you live? He said, I live in Detroit. So, you know, they're little... Part of the benefit of visiting these cities is, you know, you can read lots of things in the paper, you can see them on TV, but when you get there, talking and being with people that live there puts your feet on the ground in a very different and important way. So I'm tempered in my uh, pessimism about the campaign that concludes today with some optimism that there are people there they're regarded as a place of great opportunities. It's a place where they are beginning the construction of a brand new super bridge to connect them to Canada. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping there will be recognition. This driver was, he was also acute. He was exceptional. He says, Frank, you got to understand. Everyone seems to think when we finish this new bridge, money is going to come pouring across from Canada to invest in Detroit. I said, and the problem is, he says, the problem is bridges go both ways. It could just as easily be that big corporations and businesses are going to race across the bridge into Canada to invest their money there. He said, people need to be aware the bridge is going to create extraordinary economic opportunities for Detroit, but someone's got to be smart enough to take advantage of that. Absolutely. And I love your positive spin on Detroit. In Toledo, I live about 45 minutes away, and and that's the big city for us. That's where you go to the concerts or a nice restaurant out, and I have very much enjoyed my time uh, spent in that city. Well, let let me add, because that's really neat. You know, when I spoke at the Michigan Municipal League annual meeting, which was in downtown Detroit, 
they did a great thing. On day one, they organized tours. So you had a lot of elected officials from very small municipalities, from upstate Michigan, et cetera, and they told me that one of their highlights of this year's annual meeting was that tour because, you know, what they see on TV, what they read in the papers makes it sound like <laughs> you you would not be able to live if you toured some of Detroit's neighborhoods. You, mm-hmm. your, your bus would be shot with machine gun bullets through and through. And so they came back being really excited that it's not nearly as bad as you see on TV or hear about and yes, there are hard things and there are challenges. And yes, you know, the question I received most often was, is Detroit contagious? But they said the highlight, really, they thought of the conference was that tour, saying, yep, there were some really bad parts, but there's some really good parts. Because as soon as you see the good parts, I think you come away with a recognition there is hope, there is an opportunity, it's going to take determined leadership and very hard work. The other thing I think is because the governor personally, especially with this trial, has had to invest a lot of time dealing with Detroit. He has a vested interest in making sure it's not money down the rat hole. Well, and that is good to hear. So on these points, uh, what in your view is the best case scenario for Detroit over the next, say, five to 10 years? The best case scenario is um, they move along with this bankruptcy process. They work out an agreement that preserves a, a livable amount of retirement benefits that uh, the state, working together with the municipalities in the Detroit metropolitan area, works out an arrangement to alleviate the city of that too big geographic area so that the city can conform its boundaries to its current and likely future population. And um, and that, I think, would remarkably reduce the cost of city services to Detroit and let the city concentrate on, on making its neighborhoods far more livable, livable, and investing in the more in the infrastructure of downtown Detroit, so that we see some of these people just moving in now, particularly young tech people moving in, saying, "I want to be here at the beginning of something new, a brand new motor city." Well, I know we're running short on time and you've got a very busy day and week ahead. So, But before I let you go, uh, do you want to give us a sense of what's next for you and your research team at George Mason? Well, I think what's next is trying to really look at the big picture, including taking it to another level. You know, I was fortunate 25 years ago to spend a fair amount of time with the uh, attorney who headed up the Kerner Commission for former President Lyndon Johnson. And the, the recognition by President Johnson that in that year we had riots in cities, we had significant racial issues going on inside big cities in America, and that the federal government could play an important constructive role. So one of the next things I want to look at is 
where's the federal government in all of this? It's, you know, this is a federal government that put $45 million into bailing out General Motors. The bottom line this week, it appears that the loss to federal taxpayers for saving General Motors was $10 billion. There's been nothing remotely comparable. There has been the obverse with regard to Detroit. We've seen a federal shutdown. We've seen a sequester. So one of the next steps is to look at what is the role of the federal government here? How do you have a federal government that, you know, affirmatively comes in and invests in uh, Chapter 11 and Chapter 12 corporations, but further disinvests in Chapter 9 corporations? It doesn't make sense. But I don't know anyone that's looked at that for a number of years. So that's one of the next areas we would like to look. Well, and we will be sure to stay tuned. Uh, thank you so much, Frank, for joining me. Yes, ma'am. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. You can access Professor Schaffroth's reports on Detroit and the other municipalities studied at fiscalbankruptcy.wordpress.com. That website will also lead you to his blog on municipal fiscal issues. And you can always find more than 130 podcasts at our website, podcast.abi.org. Until next time, from the American Bankruptcy Institute, this is resident scholar Kara Bruce.